Hello and welcome to the Smells Like Infinite Sadness podcast. I'm your host, Michael Taylor. Those of you who don't know, I run the website, SmellsLikeInfiniteSadness.com. It's a blog covering the best alternative rock from the 80s and 90s up to present day. I'm a proud middle-aged Gen Xer who is still obsessed with the music of his youth and loves to talk about it. Now today I'll be speaking with Marty Wilson-Piper. He is, of course, best known as the guitarist for The Church, the Australian psychedelic rock institution who he played with for over 20 years, but he's also had a rich body of work outside the band. He's had a, a solo career for many, many years, and since leaving the band, he's worked with a ton of other acts. He's been especially busy as of late, recently releasing his new album entitled The Afterlife for Nocturum, a musical duo featuring Piper and his collaborator Dare Mason, which came out in February under School Kid Records. Marty also has a special surprise for fans, just in time for Record Store Day 2019. He'll be re-releasing his solo album for 2000 entitled Hanging Out in Heaven. It'll be on a blue-tinged double record set with new artwork and two extra tracks, which is also coming out via School Kid Records. Now, I had a chance to interview Marty regarding all of his recent activity, as well as even more material that he has in the works, so sit back and enjoy the interview, followed by tracks of Hanging Out in Heaven and The Afterlife. All right. Well, I guess my first question is, tell me about your recent European tour, how that went, and uh, and how did that all go about? Um, well, um, the uh, all the dates were, were really great. There was a lot of... Uh, I, I describe it by saying there was a lot of love in the room, <laughs> you know? and uh, it's really great to be uh, able to perform in that surrounding. Um, a lot of attentive people who were interested in uh, liked what we do, liked the sound of of what we do. You know, me playing um, songs I wrote or generally co-wrote, singing them, twelve-string guitar. Olivia playing violin, some harmonies, some, you know, stories. Um, and um, people were really receptive to it. And uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Met a lot of great people. And um, it was really encouraging to perform these days to people that wanted to listen. You know, there's been a lot of um, things I've read on the net about what is it with people that go to shows and don't want to listen? Mm-hmm. They, they go there and talk all the way through it, and they're, they're not actually there for what's happening. It's like you know going to the movies and somebody gets their phone out. It's like really, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. is a it is a real problem. I've noticed a lot of shows too. You're like, why did you pay money? Why did you want to come? If you're going to be in your phone the whole time or talk. It's it's strange. Yeah. Well, I. I unfortunately I missed you the last time you were in Austin. I didn't realize you were in town till after till after you were gone. Uh, yeah. But but I was kind of curious between the last time I saw you and this recent trip, you kind of switched things up as far as the set list was concerned. Were you still kind of being very improvisational each night? Like um, yeah, well you know um, we have some kind of standard songs that we play and uh, and we sort of um, um, try and pick some new ones each time. Um, I, I think what Olivia and I need to do, though, um, is we need to m- make a record of of us how we sound. Because what we do is we go out there as the duo of, of the two of us, and we sound this way. And then somebody comes up and says, "So um, I see you've got lots of CDs and vinyl for sale. Which one is the one that most typifies?" What I heard tonight, because I really enjoyed tonight, and I go, uh, actually, none of them. 
<laughs> you know. So um, we need to sort of have a version of our live selves for sale at the shows so that people can actually buy what they hear. I mean, obviously you can buy my solo records or Nocturum records or Moat records or, um, you know, projects that I've been involved in, but none of them really sound the way that we sound. And uh, people sort of t seem to like the way that we sound as we are. So it would be great to... Um, it would be really great to uh, to make a record of of either, either recorded versions of our set, or uh, perhaps uh, new material, or perhaps a mixture of both. And the thing is, if we using this, I mean, the thing is, the violin uh, has really put a new slant on my songwriting and what I do. So. I have a, a a big history of co-writing or writing songs and making records. So we could be interpreting all that material uh, as Olivia and I for years to come, you know. Um, so it might be nice to maybe mix some of the older songs with some new songs and, and just make a, a whole lot of records for the next 10 years or however long I survive the planet Earth. <laughs> Well, I've also been really enjoying the the uh, new Nocturne album, The Afterlife. I thought that's a really great, solid recording. I've enjoyed all the songs off of it. I was curious, have you enjoyed the response to it so far, and and how yeah. is it how is it making that album? Um, well, it's really been well received. It hit the bottom of some of the American charts, which was kind of interesting. Uh, but it, it also uh, more more importantly, people. Who who uh, who like me like it, um, uh, and uh, enthusiastic reviews and feedback, um, and you know it's a funny thing though, isn't it? Because we've been. I mean, I don't know if this is a better record than the three albums we made before this one. Mm -hmm. You know, this is Nocturum. The Afterlife is Nocturum Four, um, and. Um, it's great that people have so have enthused so much about it, but Nocturum Three didn't really get to anybody for some reason. I mean, I mean, by definition, Nocturum records are kind of eclectic. Uh, so when I say Nocturum Three wasn't really that different to Nocturum Four, uh, that's kind of a bit of a contradiction because they're eclectic anyway. But um, <laughs> but the but um, Honey Mink Forever, the third Nocturum album, didn't really get to anybody. But, you know, it didn't really get promoted. It didn't really get pushed. There wasn't really any gigs or anybody sort of really properly behind it. So um, I, I just like to think that um, this might, it might, people might be interested in the previous records because of this one. That's what happens to me when I discover a band. And I go, oh, my God. Mm -hmm, this is this is their 18th album and I've never got into them before. I start going back. I mean, when I, when I bought, I guess the first Bowie album I bought was probably Ziggy Stardust. You know, so what did I do? I didn't wait for the next album. I went and bought Hunky Dory. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't that the obvious thing to do? Kind of trace it back to its, to its source. Yeah, dis despite Hunky Dory being a quite different record to Ziggy Stardust, I um, 
I was very uh, pleasantly surprised. Hunky Dory is such a great album, you know, but it wasn't. It didn't have the appeal that Ziggy Stardust did, and because Ziggy Stardust was so popular, Hunky Dory went back into the charts, even though it didn't perform anywhere near as Ziggy Stardust when it came out. So the quality of the record, obviously, is nothing to do with the quality of the record. It's just some people get to get to hear it, and yeah, that's just how it works. It seems, you know, and it's all. It's like. I think you can probably say truthfully that for most people, um, they'd really like this if they'd got to hear it. Well, do you think that doing the whole crowd funding thing is kind of a nice way to involve the fans and, and they get more appreciation out of an album that way they're more intimately involved as far as? Uh, well, I think that, well, you know, we had a problem with the crowdfunding thing. We raised um an amount for the afterlife and then pledge music didn't pay us seriously so, yeah oh yeah they were they still owe us uh, at least half i don't know exactly how much it is but um we actually managed to make the record master it do the cover art send it all out we honored uh we honored um all the pledges but they didn't pay us all the money that we uh had pledged to us it's a massive problem there's a whole lot of bands um who didn't get paid uh, we're waiting to find out what's going to happen in april um but um uh, to answer your question about into the intimate relationship between um people uh, who make the records and people that enjoy them um i i've always liked it that way i i i was never very much for um you know, differentiating between us, you know, us and the, the us and them thing. There's them, the audience, and me, the star. You know, it's just like, ugh. I, you know, this whole thing about um, um, meet and greets, where people pay to meet you. I think it's just wrong. I, you don't have to pay me to meet me. You don't have to pay me to give you an autograph. A record by me that's autographed doesn't cost more than one that isn't. I just, I just don't get it. That's not intimacy to me. That's taking advantage of, of enthusiastic fans who, the people who, the very people who are supporting you, it's, it's just taking advantage of them. And I, I just, I just think it's just wrong. Well, going back to the pledge music, is that a, that's a common issue now with them not paying artists. Is that really been kind of an epidemic? Because that's, that's. Well, a- I'm surprised. You, I'm surprised you haven't even heard about this. This has been a real big. Yeah, News. it's a real, been a real. You should go on the net and have a look at it when after we've spoken. I will because it's it's a whole thing. A whole lot of bands suddenly found they weren't getting paid, and then they suspended their 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 business uh, and told everybody to wait till April Ugh. when they, when we would come back to us and um, let us know the where we where we stand. But at this point, we we uh, still have no information. Is that I mean, is it when you look at you know being in a in a you know back in the career in the eighties and the nineties when there was actually a strong you know record label support and now it's it's more into the you know the internet and and kind of you know finding your own different route is it extremely difficult to operate in those waters or do you find it I mean is it there's pros and cons to each versus what you do now versus the days of where labels gave more support or how do you yeah you see the thing is. 
the pros yeah, let me answer this this way um the labels gave support to some people not to everybody and some people couldn't get arrested even if they were good because i don't know they didn't have a, a, a perceived hit or they weren't good looking enough or you know they weren't young enough or they, they, they didn't have the right integrity or weren't controversial enough or whatever it was. So it's leveled the playing field, really. Uh, and uh, somebody uh, might be able to get a lot further now than they ever could because the, the major labels would never support them. So, you know, we were lucky. Uh, I was lucky to be part of a a band that that did get noticed and did have a couple of hits and therefore uh, was able to get two people but I, I you know it's like on this latest nocturum record i mean you know i've got a label that likes me and a label owner that likes me he's hired a publicist that likes me who gets gets interviews and i get to talk to people and she promotes it all the time so i mean that's what you want is just being able to get to people, being able to say what you think about things and for getting them to hear your music. And um, hopefully between uh, what you say and what you do and what you sound like, you can grow an audience that can support you through your creativity or your future as, as a musician, you know. Well, going back to the new album, I really liked the the openings on the moon drips. It had as such a kind of spaghetti western kind of atmosphere to it. Yeah. Did you write it with that in mind? Did you have the the idea of the horns in mind when you were beginning that uh, way, or did it just kind of evolve in, into that? No, it's just it just had that beat, you know that 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 dun 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 dun, dun, dun you know it just had that thing, and it just really really asked for the. Uh, the Mexican trumpet, but you know the first part of the song is violin. So, so it's an it's 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 fascinating clash of cultures, really, because it's it's kind of like uh, Transylvania meets uh, uh, the Texas borders <laughs> and the and the and the Mexican uh, bandidos, you know. So it's it, it, it's it's interesting that it's um uh, it's interesting that it's um. Uh, stands one leg in Europe and one leg in um, one leg in Europe. Sorry, is the phone ringing there? One leg in Europe and one leg in America on the on the border between Texas and Mexico. And although it's um, it's got that uh, Tex-Mex thing going on, it also you know it's more kind of European nineteenth-century creatures of the night. So you would never usually put those two things together. But somehow those two uh, um, ideas, those two, two, you know, they're quite opposite concepts, but they somehow work together as one thing. And it just, there's no nothing weird about it at all. Well, that's great. I love how yeah. it kind of flows and it's such a good atmosphere to it. Yeah. When when you work with uh Dare Mason who I know he's also produced it. I mean, how does the, the the songwriting process work? Do you come in with the main song ideas and he 
kind of just adds different sonic elements or, or do you collaborate together? How does, how does that work? Yeah, we, we just, um, we just collaborate together. We, um, we, you know, we, we pick up a guitar and a bass or a couple of guitars and we just start playing around. And it was, as soon as somebody comes up with something that sounds like it's going to be good, Dare might say, should we put, put it, put it to a loop, you know, uh, or, um, uh, should we just put this chord sequence down and play around that chord sequence and see if we can come up with another part? And then, you know, that loop might turn into a drummer uh, later on in the process. But uh, it's, it's generally just, you know, somebody picking up a guitar and, and sitting here because we're actually in the we're actually in the VIP lounge studio right now where we made that record. And um, whoever comes up with a good idea, we start thinking about putting it down it sort of starts as a demo and then we start refining it until it turns into a finished song but it sort of, sort of starts as a rough idea on the same piece of tape you know what i like about the album is how it kind of goes from these very kind of epic things like that or or the uh, the, the title track but then you have the the closing track which i want to get the the a field with sheep is that, is that the, the title right it it, it. In a field full of sheep. In a field full of sheep, which I, I love the the kind of uh, just lackadaisical <laughs> lyrics where you just kind of scrum like a day in the life of of you all making the record. How did was that kind of improvisational when those lyrics came out, or how did it was at first? Yeah, we sort of I don't know why we we Darren and I have um, have a certain aspect of ourselves which we call English whimsy, and, <laughs> um, and that's what that song is. And uh, uh, I don't know. I guess we came up with with some of the. Um, the mu- again, we would start with the music, and then I just went in the studio and just started jamming words over it. And I, I and I, I just went in and went, Olivia sewed up her skirt again. And by the time the morning came, it had broken. And then I just carried on, just inventing all these people around me that I, were involved or friends or Julian who lived around the corner and is a removal man and. My mate Harden, my mate, mine and Dave's mate Harden, Boydie and Martin, who's his flatmate, and you know, and we just kind of started incorporating them into this song, you know. So I started writing this kind of whimsical song about the people around whilst we were making the record and how our how our life is uh, influenced by our friends, and you know, the idea was uh, in a field full of sheep. It was like, kind of like a dream, you know, mm-hmm. and. Um, I was kind of having this bizarre dream with all these characters in it that I, I knew. Um, and, uh, you know, it ends with, uh, I awoke with a start in a field full of sheep. And, you know, so it's almost like it's kind of a contradiction. I awoke with a start in a field full of sheep. The sheep was supposed to signify the dream, but I was awaking into the dream. So, you know, it's kind of a... You know, it's kind of a bit surreal and a bit down to earth. It's like a mixture. Again, you know, I really like incorporating these ideas of, of of opposites into one thing. You know, it's surreal and down to earth. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's to me is I find that kind of interesting. Well, I, I hear that a lot throughout the album. So you got like a girl with no love, which kind of got more of a kind of a garage, your rock kind yeah. of feel to it. Have you given any thought to taking this album on the road, doing a tour on tour, or? Is it more just kind of lives in the studio and uh, yeah, Dare, Dare's not that into it as a uh, road project. Um, 
he's you know he's not he's not a, a guy that goes out on the road and plays you know he doesn't sort of uh, he, you know he's just brilliant in the studio but he's not that interested in going out on the road and I mean I could go out on the road with it uh, just Olivia and I um, and uh, it's not like I I mean the drummer Ed uh, our friend Hannah who plays bass with us in America she could play bass you know, we could find a couple of other people, but it just sort of gets expensive, you know, because you can't sort of just make a make a record like that and and then and then uh, afford to take it out on the road. Yeah, with all the different production elements you have on it. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, you need six or seven people, you know, and that means a bus and that means accommodation, and you know, it's just it's just too hard. I mean, we you sort of make a project in the studio and and. Um, you 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 just have to live with the fact that it's a studio project. Uh, doesn't mean to say I won't play songs from the album live at some point when I have the potential to add some people to Olivia and Eyes that lacked. Maybe you know with a couple of others. I mean, we do tour in America sometimes with our, our friends Don and Hannah, and that means that maybe you know we could do a couple of songs off the Nocturum album, like we do a couple of songs off other Nocturum albums and we do interpretations. So, you know, we, we, you sort of, that's what you have to do these days. You either got a nine piece band or you're doing interpretations. Well, I was also ex- excited to see that you've got, you're releasing uh, hanging out in heaven's going to get a vinyl release, which I always yeah. love that album. So when did, was that kind of always in your mind to get a, a record day release for Did someone else approach you with it? How did that, how did that come about? Well, um, I, I've always imagined hanging out in heaven as a vinyl record. It was never intended to be just a CD version. It was it was supposed to be vinyl as well, and it's took it's taken nineteen years to get it onto vinyl. Um, uh, it's double vinyl. It's got two extra tracks because it was always going to have a couple of extra tracks which never made the CD. It's got different artwork because the CD artwork was was a rush job and never really thought about, um, despite Anthony Collins kindly um, supplying us with that photo, which we used for the original record. We've got a whole new artwork. A friend of mine, Jan Udenfeldt in uh, Stockholm, he and I went on a trip sometime in the 80s and uh, uh, he took pictures of me when I was a young man doing crazy things with my camera. And uh, he um, and we used his photos for this cover because it just seemed, I don't know, it just seemed a funny thing to do. To I think I saw, was it like Brian Ferry's last album where he had a picture of himself on the cover as a younger person? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting idea, you know, saying, well, here's a picture of me when I was young. You know, does it have to be... A, I made this record now. Do I, do I have to have a picture of me now? Really? Is, is, who who wrote that rule? You know. Um, so, um, uh, and also the lyrics were so small. It was just a one open CD and you could just, you know, you couldn't read the lyrics. So now it's got big lyrics and, uh, you know, and all kinds of gatefolds. It's on blue vinyl. It's great. It's a really great thing. What are your, I guess, your favorite memories from making that album when you when you think back to it? Oh, gosh. Well, that was a difficult album. That's the only album, solo album or nocturum album I've made without Dare. 
Um, and it, consequently, it was kind of a tricky record to make because I was getting involved with somebody who didn't really know me as a, uh, a didn't know how to work with me as a solo artist. Um, it was uh, engineered uh, uh, by Shep Lonsdale, who was uh, the engineer on the Starfish record. And uh, he had a studio in his house and we got along and we suggested that I came around. I had some songs. We started recording them and we, we started doing things that we wouldn't normally do. And, uh, you know, and I actually, in the end, although he came up with some good ideas, some songs that I liked with some different kind of ideas that I liked and some ideas that I didn't like and not a complete record. Uh, and somebody got in touch with me. It was Robert Rankin Walker from um, Heyday Records and said, hey, you've got an album in the can. And I was like, eh, yeah, maybe. And he said, well, um, let me hear it. I'm interested. And I sent him five of the tracks and said, well, this is what, this is what I got, but I really need to get in the studio again get another five songs down and, and uh, remix some things and, you know, sort it out. And he's got back to, in touch with me and said he, he was interested and liked it a lot and would like to get involved. So I went in the studio in Sweden then, and I was working with uh, a guy called Andres Arlinius, who uh, I'd worked together with um, on the After Everything Now This album. Oh, that's a great album. Yeah, and um, I think... Am I telling the truth there? Is that the album of him on? Or, or did we do that in his studio? Maybe we just did that in his studio. And Box of Birds, we did that in his studio as well, I think. But anyway, we'd been around. I'd worked with him on, that's right, I'd worked with him on another project, which I produced, and he'd been the engineer, and I produced it. And then I'd, I'd worked with him in his studio. And then I think I'd suggested to the band that we should go to his studio to to record and i think he just just we just used his studio but anyway he was around i'd worked with him before so i went in the studio with him and finished off these songs i did i recorded forget the radio and all that remains and i don't know three more tracks with him in in that studio and then presented these extra five songs to robert at heyday records and he said great uh, we put them together got us got a uh, got a um uh, sequence together but for some reason i don't i don't actually remember why it ended up being just such a basic cover art I, I can't remember why we had no time to sort of think about the cover and get exactly what we wanted and why the lyrics were so small maybe it was just because we didn't know what to do with cds or something maybe we were still suffering from from uh, cds how do we you know <laughs> it was kind of probably before big booklets, you know, CDs kind of evolved, didn't they? You know, they, mm -hmm. they started off as like really basic things and the record companies were so slack with the, the you know, they'd re-released The Doors, LA Woman, and it'd just be one piece of paper, boom. <laughs> you, you know, and then suddenly somebody clicked that, wait a minute, why don't we have some sleeve notes and some old photos and why don't we remaster it and why don't we make this actual the, the CD itself look great instead of it just being silver, the mm -hmm. doors, a woman, you know. And um, so it was kind of uh, probably before that was happening or at least um, it only just started. So not a lot of thought went into the actual pre presentation of the record. Um, 
But having said that, it was well received, you know. Oh, I remember that I saw you at the Cactus Cafe way oh, back yeah. when, and that's actually the first time that I that I saw you solo, and the first time that I actually heard stuff in the album. I remember we all, my friend and I, bought the CD after the show, so that's always right. been. We I always really liked that song. Um, you bring your love to me. I, I think it's probably one of the best songs you've ever done. I think it's such a great, great song. I just like the atmosphere of it, and mm. I just thought that was particularly. Mm, it's, funny, it's funny you should say that. Um, I just met. Um... Um, a friend in uh, a friend of a friend of a friend came to see us in Liverpool, and um, he didn't know anything about me. And um, he said, "What's that song you did third? <laughs> um, the song we did third. And I thought about it, and I was like, "Oh, you mean you bring your love to me? Oh God!" And he was Scottish. He said. Oh, yeah, Craig, I thought it was a great song. I never heard that before. It was great, mate. You know, and so, so you know, that song just seemed to talk to people. I always say that's my, me being Pink Floyd by myself. <laughs> it's, it definitely has a really good atmosphere. But I was, I was also kind of surprised the last time that I saw you in Austin where you, were, you talked about that After Eight song. Oh yeah, and, and you had mentioned that it was about suicide, which I had never—I guess I just never took up the lyrics. But it was—I thought it was one of those classic examples of like a kind of a a kind of a uplifting melody, but with kind of dark lyrics. Um, do you remember? Well, like- I, 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 yes, just see it again. Again, it's like the contradiction thing. I wanted to to write a sort of a, a happy song about suicide. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought people that committed suicide needed a sort of more of a, a joyous soundtrack than than a rather than a, a, a depressing one. Um, but the lyrics, you know, you told me you're coming after five. If I'm alive, after five, I told you'd be better after eight. When it's too late, after eight, and if you hear a floorboard creak, be sure that it's not me. Uh, my feet won't reach the carpet now the world has set me free you know uh if you want to be here in good time get off the line drink your wine if you don't think you'll make it it's okay gone tomorrow here today and if silence is what shocks you it's just a different kind of noise it's good for you but it's bad it's bad for you but it's good for me i didn't have much choice you know, it's obviously a suicide song, but um, obviously done in a sort of, again, in a kind of a whimsical way, you know. I mean, do you remember what, what inspired that? I mean, hopefully nothing too, it's um, just how that how that came about, because it's a very interesting approach to something like that. After Eight is a mint do you know what that is? Oh yeah, the little, the little chocolate mints that you get. <laughs> the chocolate mint, yeah. which my parents used to bring out every now and again, and it was like luxury. They brought out the after eights, <laughs> and you'd sort of eat, you'd eat one, and you'd go, mmm, that's so great," and then you'd eat five, and you'd feel sick. <laughs> so maybe there's some kind of bizarre connection between the luxurious chocolate and and the pain that it's ultimately going to cause. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you given any thought to performing any material from that album? You know, 
this year in, in honor of the record store release? Have you been performing stuff off of it on your recent uh, tour? Well, we, yeah, we did, we did play After Eight once or twice on the tour. We played You Bring Your Love to Me three or four times on the tour. We played Forget the Radio once or twice on the tour. Um and maybe one or two others. So yeah, we were we were uh, we, we were sort of uh, recognizing that that was record was coming out, and um, uh, so we did uh, yeah a couple of tracks from it. But um, I don't know. I mean, what are you talking about? What doing? Uh, see, Marty Wilson Piper played the whole of Hanging Out in Heaven. You mean something like that? I wasn't sure. I just know since it was getting a kind of a a nice re-release, if you had given kind of a thought to giving a a showcase to that, I suppose. Yeah. Well, well, we'd have to learn a, a, a whole lot more songs, but I mean, I guess that's possible again. You know, it's about, it's about which songs you can interpret and which songs don't want to be interpreted in a new way. Um, some songs might have keyboards on it. We don't have keyboards live. I mean, it doesn't mean there's not a million keyboard players out there that, that that could play tracks from that record. Um, you know, as the lead singer, I can't look after all the guitar parts. Uh So I need another guitar player. Sometimes I can play, you know, the electric guitar parts, I suppose, but generally I'd have to play the acoustic guitar parts, which means I need an electric guitar player who can play all the parts of the way that I want them to be played, you know, sure, with input from the from the player himself, but, you know, there's certain things you want a certain way. That's why Jimmy Page never had another guitarist in Led Zeppelin. <laughs> can you imagine, you know, he was trying to play all those Led Zeppelin, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but still, all those Led Zeppelin records, there's, there's the riffs and there's the solos over the riffs. So why didn't he have another guitarist? Because he couldn't trust another guitarist to do what he did in his parts on the albums. I, I, that's what I, that's the theory I came up with. They couldn't do what he did the way that he did it, you know? Uh, so he, that I'll just do, I'll just look after all the solos myself and the the band will support me and the singer will come in and we'll get back to the riff and it'll be fine. But you hear some of those Led Zeppelin bootlegs and they're pretty dodgy actually. <laughs> <laughs> they're sort of great in some sometimes, but there's some dodgy awkward moments there where he's not really nailing it, you know? Um, so, uh, but um, you know, it's not like I don't, uh, having said that, it's not that it's not like I thought, Oh, can I trust anybody to play? the songs the way I want them to be played. It's, uh, it's more about, as I said before, it's, it's more about, um, at my level, getting a, a sort of a, a proper band on the road. It's just a pricey exercise. And, um, I don't really know how to do that until there's 500 people coming to every gig and we're sort of not at that stage. We're at the stage where we play small, intimate, folk clubs and little clubs and little shows with an acoustic setting with violin and acoustic guitar. Sometimes a couple of friends join us and we do our best to, uh, to uh, interpret the songs in a way that people want to hear. But sure. I mean, you know, I'm known as a guitar player. I mean, I could, I, I would love to be able to go on stage and, and, and play riffs and lead solos and parts and, um, and have a, a big band and be the lead singer. I, I, 
I'd love to be able to do that, but you know, it's it's there's practicalities involved which don't make it that easy. Well, you had mentioned possibly doing a an album with with Olivia that's based on the way y'all you'll perform on stage. And I know you've always got plenty of projects in the works. Is there anything else that you're currently working on? Any new albums or any new any other things that you're you know at the moment? Or? I'm in I'm in the studio. As I said, I'm actually in the VIP lounge in Deep Music Archive. This is where we work. Um, I'm actually working on a record. Olivia and I both are working on a record called Atlantium. The name of the, the band is Atlantium. It's a Steve and Lynn Knott. Um, um, that's K-N-O-T. And um, uh, it's like an instrumental project. And uh, Steve writes all these uh, sort of acoustic-y backings uh, and he gets Lynn, who plays the, uh, uh, the electric cello, uh, to play some lines. And then he gets Olivia in here and he suggests some lines to her. And then Olivia does a bit of overdubbing herself to get a string, sort of a, a bit of a string section going. And then he sort of says to me, well, play, can you play guitar over this instrumental section, see what you come up with? And sometimes he says, I've got a bit of a melody line I'd like you to play. Other times he says, you just play and do what you think, and then I'll pick out some line that I like. And Dare's involved in that as well. You know, says, oh, that's a good melody. You know, maybe you could do that again. That could be a theme. Or I say, hmm, I've listened to this, and I had an idea for a melody that just came into my head. What do you think of this? And, and you know, they say, oh, yeah, cool idea. Let's see if you can work that out, and, and we'll work on that, and that will be, you know, the, the sort of lead part of the song. Um so, um, and you know, we're, we're four or five songs in and I guess there's three or four more songs to record with that, that, that kind of thinking. Yeah. And that's, that's the project we're working on right now. And, um, and then May there's the, the new moat album, poison stream, it's called appropriate title for these days. And, uh, that's half completed and we're hopefully going to continue with that. There's loads going on, man. What can I tell you? Um, we're hopefully going to France to do a little bit of work with Arno on the Sweet Gumtree uh, album uh, project that he has. I played bass in his band on a tour a few years ago. So I was playing bass in a French band. That seemed like a cool idea at the time. So uh, he wants me to go over there and do a little bit of playing with him. And then uh, Olivia and I are doing some gigs in Germany. We're playing the Dusseldorf Acoustic Festival in September some other gigs in the West German, the West of Germany, um, in, uh, July. Uh, and I'm sure you're aware that Olivia hosts Germany and Europe's largest progressive rock festival night of the prog in Lorelei in July, getting her way. <laughs> and, um, hopefully seeing, uh, hopefully seeing Steve Hillage on the Sunday night, and uh, Nick Mason's A Source of Full of Secrets on the Saturday night. Oh, wow. Tangerine Dream and IQ on the Friday night. And Anathema are playing as well, the Liverpool band. And a few, you know, a few other few other groups. So we'll be doing that. Um, you, you know, uh, I hope to be back in Texas. Uh, I've got Salim Norala's album that I produced last year in Texas, um, in Dallas. And uh, there has been talk of us going back there to... Um, perhaps finish off a couple of songs which i didn't get to play on 
There's also been talk of him sending those tracks over here for me to finish them here in case we don't get back to Texas. But if we do get back to Texas, we're thinking that we might be able to record in his studio this project that Olivia and I would like to do, whether it be a mixture of old new songs or whatever it is, you know, just trying to get a version of ourselves uh, out there recorded. So, I mean, do you feel... If you have like too much downtime, do you get kind of antsy? I mean, is it really important for you to be constantly, you know, working on something, um, you know, pretty much filling up most of your time doing music? Is that just... Yeah, there is no downtime. There's absolutely no downtime. You know, I've got the Indie Music Archive, which is a, 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 a project which will go on forever, collecting records, trying to find a way to get them into a building so that people can enjoy them too. That's a, a dream for the future, owning a building where I could have a, a 60s room and a 70s room and an 80s room and a 90s room with all the records and all my guitars and books and a little cafe and a little stage and a room full of record players and and events and talks and, and you know, and a rock and roll crash upstairs and yoga and in the in the B room, you know. So that's that's a whole thing that could take up the whole of my life if I never did anything else, you know. Plus, I do this uh, songwriting and guitar guidance sessions, which um, I have uh, people get in touch with me and I help them with their work, um, trying to help them get to another level with their with their creativity, whether it's songwriting. Or, or playing guitar, you know. Uh, so that's that keeps me busy all the time as well. I like writing. I like writing about music. I do, you know, the Indie Music Archive website's got, I've written over a million words about music, you know, I'm constantly finding old records that I've never heard of that I love. I'm constantly finding new records that I've never heard of that I love. You know, it's just never ending. Um, so, yeah. There's, there's, there is no real downtime. Well, you mentioned the idea of the Indie Music Archive as kind of a communal space. Have you gotten any discussion as far as funding that or where it would be held? Or uh, I just had a, a, a conversation with Jason and Corrado from Rome uh, earlier tonight. And uh, Jason is a Canadian um, librarian. And Corrado is a guy now bit of a fan and who when i was in rome with anecdote and uh he uh, you know showed me around and hung out with him a bit and he's he's always been interested in trying to help me get the indie music archive off the ground as a as a project for funding or you know get that building that i need for it uh so i had an interesting conversation with him tonight and uh he was just telling me that the first thing I have to do is is visualize or not visualize, verbalize uh, exactly what it is, how I see it. And then that's the first stage when it comes to inventory. And, uh, you know, it's 50,000 records. It's just a, it's just a huge job. Um, but the vision of, of how I see it getting to the, to the world is uh, something I have to write down and, and, and uh, try and think about. I guess what I was just saying was that I remember just seeing a video clip that you put to kind of discussing it and all the records you're walking around and showing. And I was like blown away. I'm like, this looks like a record store you have in your house. It was so massive. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And it's all kinds of things, you know, it's all kinds of things. It's swing and jazz and blues and 
fusion and classical and soul. And that's just part of it. It's, it's mostly rock, singer-songwriter, rock bands, you know, but it's reggae and, you know, Italians, Germans, Canadians, French records, you know. I mean, there's not a lot of hip-hop in there, but that's more because I don't know much about it. Because uh, I didn't grow up with it and I don't know much about it. If I, If there was somebody around who could educate me and come around here for three months and say, okay, this is great hip-hop and this is why, you know, I'd probably get into it, you know. I just don't get much exposure to that kind of music, you know. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in hearing music and I, I love I love new acts. I love old acts. I love old records. I love new records. I like CDs. I like vinyl. I like cassettes. I like it. I like 78s. I like it all, you know. Oh, so you were mentioning, you know, coming back to, to Texas at some point. Do you have any plans at all right now for American dates, North American dates, or just, just? No, nothing, no. Just vague ideas, really. I think I, the other thing I'll be doing is I'll be going back to Sweden. I start. I went to Sweden in February to work with Anecdoten on uh, demos for a new album with them. And uh, there's a gig in, in Norway in October, and um, maybe at that point we'd sort of get back into finishing demos and getting getting onto a, actually recording a new album with them, which would be great because I've been in the band for four years now. And um, I, uh, I just played on the title track of their last record, and that's when they asked me to join. Um, but this record I'll be involved in from the start, you know, on all kinds of different levels and, and playing guitar on every track and um, uh, writing and, uh, you know, helping them with producing the vocals, you know, because I'm English and they're Swedish, just helping them with, with that and um, getting quite involved in that. So, yeah. Yeah, there's lots going on, but um, in the end, all I want to know is where am I going to get the 19 quid to uh, buy the reissue of David Sylvian's Secrets of Beehive? That's all I care about at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, great. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. It was a pleasure, as always. Was there anything else you wanted to add about anything else coming up? Or I guess we we covered quite a bit of it, but anything else you wanted to promote or... I just hope that we, we that I, I, you know, I want to be able to do that. this British tour that I did. It's the first time I ever toured Britain by myself and with Olivia, but as me, you know, and um, I, I, I just hope that I can continue to do. It, it's not like I've got anything more to promote. It's 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 that I, I just like people to know that I, I'd like to do more of what I do. I mean, it seems like I when I talk to people about it, they always say, well, oh my God, you're doing so many things. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, uh, oh, really? Well, you know, that's going to be done soon. And, and then what about, I mean, I haven't got any more British dates planned. What, what, when, when are the, when's that going to happen, you know? And can I do more British dates? Should I be booking the next British tour for next March tomorrow? Um, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about how I can continue to do things that I want to do and and. Uh, you know, I mean, we we say the word promote and we do interviews and that's promotion, but it's more about, I don't sort of see it like that. I see, just see, I just see it more as being involved, you know, mm-hmm. being involved in the creative process. And, and it's great when you're in a position like I am where I can go and play to 50, 60 people and sell out some London shows, sold, selling out London and Manchester and go and play 50, 60 people in some small rooms in, 
in Edinburgh and Liverpool and and and, and Birmingham and Bristol and 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 people clapping and listening and liking it. And I, that's what I want to do and come in the studio and come up with some great ideas and do a good recording of it and get it out and it's great to have the support of school kids records in America, you know, and, and, um, just being involved with my wife makes everything really great. So that, that everything, you know, creative and personal is all kind of intertwined. That's a, that's a great place to be. And with, with an audience that is, 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 is willing to listen and appreciates it and wants to, you know, wants, wants to, uh, buy it you know so so i can but so i can do it again make another record you know and keep on doing it because i mean i could sit in here happily for five years presuming i had the financial stability and i could just sit in here for five years and write songs and different kinds of things and sing and play and play the bass and Livy could play violin and we could write together and invite people you know we could just i mean it's just this whole fantastic process of creativity this whole whole idea that that that's there's a blank canvas and then you go Bleh! and then this magic this magic thing happens and suddenly there you've got something which is great and and evocative and meaningful and melodic and 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 experimental and interesting and catchy from nowhere i mean it's just an amazing thing and i i just always want to be involved in that you know well, I hope that to see you sooner than later, and I, I will definitely won't miss you next time. I don't know how that happened last time, but I, I will keep an keep an eye on that bands in town app. Yeah, well, you gotta you gotta be on the mailing list, maybe. Yeah, Michael, let's do that too. Get on the mailing list. Talk to Olivia about how to not miss gigs, or yeah. or you know, fly to Dusseldorf on September the seventh. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could. Well, it's always, yeah. it's always a pleasure, Marty. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. All right. Well, have a great night, and I'll talk to you all soon. All right. See ya. Bye. Thanks to Marty for taking the time out for this interview. Be sure and get his blue vinyl reissue at your local record store this weekend. And you can purchase The Afterlife via the Amazon link on our website for the blog post for this episode. Both albums are released via School Kids Records. We're going to close out with The Moon Drips off Nocturum's The Afterlife. And then we'll close with You Bring Your Love to Me off Hanging Out in Heaven. Till next time, take care and talk to you soon.
diamonds and snow and crystals that grow the tuning of trees that hangs on the breeze and you bring my hand left to me you bring my hand left to me if I had the choice of an angel's voice If I could empower For one single hour Then you'd bring your love to me You'd bring your love to me And we'd kiss And entwine For